Psalm 22, please. Yes, we are in a different passage today because it's a communion Sunday. And I like to uh, set our focus upon what Christ has done for us. We're going to be in Psalm 22. This is also Reformation Day. Did you know that? Very important day in history. October 31st, 1517. Over 500 years ago. That's the day that Martin Luther nailed the 95 Thesis to the door of the Wittenberg Church. You study history, you study his life, you'll find some wonderful things there. But that whole purpose of nailing that thesis to the door was to challenge the religious authorities to debate the points of theology. Martin Luther was convinced that Scripture said clearly, salvation is by faith alone, in Him alone, to save us from our sins. It's very important. He paid the penalty of death for our sins so that we could live through Him. And folks, we want to be very careful that we present before you the truth. And yet we want to do it the way God said, and show it as He loved us. So we share a message of His great love for you that you need to be saved, and it's only through Jesus Christ. And that's what we hold to very tightly. We carry that belief to today. Salvation is only through Jesus Christ. Only. Faith in Him alone, save us from our sins. That's the answer. He paid the penalty for us. We know that. And it's very appropriate that we talk about that today, as we have a communion Sunday before us. Very appropriate that we spend our morning focused on Jesus Christ and what He has done for us. That's why we're in Psalm 22. And I'm going to start in verse number 4 today and work my way all the way to verse 15, believe it or not. It's a big chunk, but we're going to work on this together. Psalm 22, 4. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were delivered. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. But I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All who see me sneer at me, they separate with the lip. They wag the head, saying, Commit yourself to the Lord. Let Him deliver Him. Let Him rescue Him, because He delights in Him. Yet you are He who brought me forth from the womb. You made me trust upon my mother's breast. Upon you I was cast from birth. Upon you I was cast from birth. You have been my God from my mother's womb. Be now far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They opened wide their mouth at me as a ravening and a roaring lion. I am poured out like water. All of my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue cleaves to my jaws, and you lay me in the dust of death. Heavenly Father, help us today. A passage that really goes far beyond our experience to understand it, and even our minds to comprehend what Jesus Christ endured for us. But I pray that you might open our eyes to help us see today. Show us the cross. Show us our Savior who died upon it. Show us your love through him. And may we come to know you better through all this, we pray in Jesus' name. 
Amen. Now, as you know, I've spread out my study of Psalm 22. Um, I'm only adding it to it on Communion Sundays, about every three months. I come back to Psalm 22. It's a Messianic psalm. If you stand in the shoes of the writer, he's talking about the Messiah. The anointed one sent from the Father who was sent to rescue the Jews. This psalm does speak about Jesus and his crucifixion. Written by David almost a thousand years before Jesus was even born. Isn't that remarkable to think about that? David is writing in this psalm about a horrible experience in his life. We do not know the details. He didn't tell us the story behind it. We know if we narrow it down, there were a couple of times in his life where he had to escape the hands of King Saul, who was out chasing him for many, many years, or his own son Absalom, who was out to kill him as well. In both cases, that was the final desire of those who sought him, was to kill him. Now, when I read this psalm, I'm not going to say David was exaggerating here. Though you might read it and say, now David, that, that's not what you experienced. That's not what you went through. You might think that uh, these aren't true words. But the reality is, if you were in David's shoes, it felt like this. And that's what he was trying to express. And it's beyond experience of our own. But the Holy Spirit is the one who penned these words. And the Holy Spirit meant for them literally to be fulfilled by Jesus Christ. And so David was an instrument, even though he suffered in his picture, the bigger picture is that Christ suffered, and Christ suffered much for us. Every time I read this psalm, it it humbles me, it quiets me. I read these words and think how astounding it is that Jesus would love me that much, that he would endure this suffering for me. It quiets my soul. What we have studied so far in our two previous messages on this passage is that Jesus was abandoned by his father in verse number one. And he underwent the cross alone. Everything in the experience of Jesus before he took on flesh and what he endured after he took on flesh spoke of an unbroken fellowship and cooperation he had with his father. In creation, they work together. In sustaining the world, they work together. In the affairs of man in history, they work together. And just then, as Jesus is depending upon his Father, even in his own life and in his own ministry, comes to a single event to the cross, the weight of the world's sin is placed upon him. He's the only sacrifice, Scripture tells us. He's the only one that could pay the penalty of sin. The only one of the Godhead who died. Jesus died alone. It's very profound to think it through. But look at the first words of the psalm. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? We don't understand that. Not truly, could we? 
all those eons of, of eternity. He and His Father were together in everything. But not as Jesus died on the cross, He died alone. It's stunning. Verse 2 and 3, the emphasis is on what appears to be unanswered prayer. His help was far away, he says. Crying by day, do not answer. Crying by night, I have no rest. My deliverance, the words of my groaning, they're separated by a far, far chasm. Help is far away. His prayers were met with no answer. Now, we might think in the Garden of Gethsemane, when when Jesus was asking, remember, take this cup from me. If you read that passage, did God ever say anything? It's not recorded, is it? We know Jesus is wrestling with that, but there's no record of any answer, even in the Garden. And in the fullness of dying as a human being, the intensity of the anguish and the silence of heaven... Those pictures come rushing to the forefront and it's hard to believe with no rescue from the Father how impressive a picture that is to me. And yet, as I shared with you last time, there's beauty in that silence. There's beauty in that silence. For if the Father had rushed to save His Son, who would have saved you from your sin? Today we get another glimpse of the cross, and I set before you these verses, 4 through 15, but I take you to chapter 15, or verse 15, all the way to the end, and this one phrase I want to set before you first and foremost. You laid me in the dust of death. You laid me in the dust of death. I want to set a picture before you to help you uh, gain some understanding to the depths of these words that are before you. And I want to draw several points from it and incorporate the rest of the verses that are in this passage. But first, let me give you the word picture, okay? It's, It's fascinating to me. You lay me in the dust of death. Now, we have assumptions by reading that, don't we, automatically. I understand that, and you do too. Just about every translation we have in the English tongue has that same phrase in it. I I always scan through all the options and see what the other ones are reading too, because you might have that in your hand right now. And it's interesting, just about everyone has that exact same phrase. The dust of death, the dust of death. So I looked up the word dust to figure out what that Hebrew word was all about, and it's the word dust. Surprised? Easy it sounds. It talks about something powdered, something gray. It's even the word for gray, like the walls. All right? It means clay, earth, mud, ashes, ground, mortar, powder, or even rubbish. Now, I had those options in front of me, and I realized that you just can't pick anyone you'd think would make you happy. So I have to balance it in the text and see if it works correctly. And I see the word dust here, and I know we pick up the idea of dust to dust, and we talk about that. We're reminded that we're like Adam. We're made out of the dust of the ground. But today, let's just say for a few minutes, and I'll have to prove this, I'm sure, 
that we're going to use the word ashes instead. You say, well, is, is that any significance? I, we'll find out. But when you pull the verb out in front of it, and you add it to the idea of ashes, the ashes of death, you get a pretty interesting picture. And let's let, let's let the verb speak for a minute. It says, you lay me in, I'm going to use the word ashes of death. The word shafath is the Hebrew word here. It means to locate something. The idea of laying it, to, to locate something, to ordain something. But what's very interesting is the other Hebrew use of that word, and it's used in Scripture almost consistently, to lay it or set it on the fire. To set it on the fire. Now, we don't have many instances of this word used in the Old Testament to help us to work with. But this is what I find interesting. If I take that verb and speak of it like to set it on the fire, to set it on the fire, I find that's almost exclusively how it's used in Scripture. It's used in, for example, 2 Kings 4, verse number 38. Elisha, the prophet, he's over at Gilgal. There was a famine in the land and everyone was hungry. And uh, he had a a school, they called them the sons of the prophets, who they would all gather together and they'd have their meals together. And I don't know, he must have been teaching them how to prophesy or something of that nature. But Elisha's there with the sons of the prophets. And the sons of the prophets are sitting there and they're hungry and there's a famine. And Elisha says, you know what? It's time to eat. And first thing he says is, put the large pot on the fire. That's where they start. That's going to make some stew. So put it on the large, put on the large pot, put it out there. That's the use of the word. Put it on the fire. Later, Ezekiel will use it. And there was a parable that he was telling in Ezekiel 24, verse 3. And he's talking about a rebellious house. He's talking about Israel, of course, and Judah. And he says, oh, we got a rebellious house here. And this is what the Lord says to you. Put on the pot, put it on, and put water in it. I'm not going to finish it. But that's, again, that Hebrew word. Put the pot on the fire. Get it ready for boiling. Only two other times it's used in Scripture. One of them's here in Psalm 22. And the only other time you'll find it is in Isaiah 26, verse number 12, when it talks about the Lord who ordains peace for us. So it's that use of that other word, ordains. So what I, I set before you is a simple picture. You've got the idea of the verb, and maybe ashes fit pretty well. You take the pot, you put it on the ashes. The ashes will warm it up in order for cooking. Right? That's a simple picture of the word, but think of it this way for a minute. And I came to a place of which God had told him, and Abraham built an altar there and arranged the woods and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. It's not the exact same word, but it's the same picture. It's the idea of laying it up on top in order to use it as a sacrifice, if you will. In these words, Speaking of Jesus, let me give you a picture now, back to Psalm 22, verse 15. Jesus was laid like a pot in the ashes. 
Now, I don't picture ashes that have gone out. Ashes that just merely need sand, and guess what they do? They just burst up into flame again. You know, that was a, a principle I learned many years ago. I, I love to barbecue with charcoal. I don't do it around here because this is Oklahoma, and I don't want to be in the paper <laughs> burning down the town. So I, I use my propane when I have to charcoal something out back. But uh, I used to use it a lot up in Indiana. I charcoaled everything. I just I love doing that. But there were times where, you know, you're done and the charcoal's still burning away and you, you close the lid and that, that red starts to fade. Several hours go by and it's getting darker and darker. And then it just looks like a bunch of gray charcoal briskets in there and such like that. And so I would, went out one day after many hours of that and I thought, well, I better clean this grill up before I quit. So I got my little iron brush, and I start brushing away, brushing away, brushing away. And as I'm going, guess what's happening? I'm fanning it, and it's starting to turn red again, and it's getting hot. And I thought, wow, that's pretty interesting. All those hours, and yet there was still flame inside the ashes. It just needed the, the, the fan, and the flames appear. Now, the reason I give you this picture is not because I'm trying to be clever. I just want you to think about something. When we use the words dust in reference to death, we picture something a whole lot more mild than the picture of hot ashes. Throughout this psalm, the pictures are of the intensity of our Savior's suffering. All the way up to his final shout, if you will remember, the Gospels record his last words. And they were not a whimper. It says that literally in Luke, and Jesus crying out with a loud voice said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said that, he breathed his last. He didn't die with a whimper. The anguish of suffering persisted. The pain became more acute. The breathing became more labored. The thirst was more burning. He was set like a pot on the ashes. You see the picture? I just want you to notice something about that. The intensity of it grew and grew and grew. And this is what alarms me or astounds me or whatever word you want to put in there when you stand there with your mouth wide open. It's this, the fact that God did this intentionally because that's the nature of the verb. He did it on purpose. To lay something on a fire is done on purpose. God located the place using the word. He ordained the act using the word. It was established from long ago that this was God's plan. As the King James Version reads in Revelation 13, 8, And all who dwell upon the earth shall worship Him whose names are not written in the Lamb's uh, book of life, the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. We picture Jesus Christ at a moment in time and dying upon a cross. How often do you think that God planned that even before the world even existed? 
In Ephesians 1, if you're, if you're not convinced there, turn with me for a minute. Keep your bookmark here. Put mine there. Ephesians chapter number 1. Starting in verse number 4. Be ready for this. This is, this is awesome. It says, Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. When were you chosen? Before the foundation of the world. Folks, do you know what? You didn't do one thing to convince God to pick you. There is not one thing you did on your own to say, God, pick me, I'm special. This kind of eliminates an awful lot of the pride issue, doesn't it? He chose you before the world. Do you know he knew you that long ago? I'm just trying to wrap my brain around that, and I think, wow! If Jesus Christ is going to die, and that's part of God's plan, isn't there a purpose in the plan? Doesn't God have a reason for that plan? And do you know what the reason was? You! He thought of you! Even before this world was made. Matter of fact, He went even bigger. He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before Him. He was looking even further out where you're not even there yet. But the day when you stand before Him in His presence, you're going to be holy and blameless. And He was thinking about that too. Too big? Woo! That's huge. That's huge. He already had a plan in mind even before we existed. In love, it says in verse 5, He predestined us to the adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself according to the kind intention of His will. This also was way back then. He already adopted you in His plans. Why? In verse 6, to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. Folks, whatever your definition of grace is, it's not big enough. God's grace is bigger. Always bigger. And when you start to understand how great this is, the praise of the glory of His grace that He would freely bestow on us, in the Beloved, that's in Jesus Christ. In Him, it says in verse 7, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace. This is not based on what you gave in an offering plate. It's not based on how you served Him. It's not how wise you might think you are, how great you think you are, how smart, how pretty, whatever. It's not based on anything you've done. It's based on God's grace and the riches of His mercy. And don't tell me you have anything near that. (laughs) You can't measure up to those words. According to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us. That's my favorite word in the New American Standard Version. He lavished it upon us. You know what? That sounds messy. But I love it. Don't you? This is what God did in all wisdom and insight. Now, I'm still getting to the best parts. Verse number 9. He made known to us the mystery of His will 
according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him. Underscore those words in your heart. He purposed it in him. It was the Father's plan all along. This was his strategy. This was his desire. This is his kind intention. He purposed it in Jesus Christ. He meant to have his son slain. He deliberately led him to Jerusalem. He orchestrated that he would be arrested. He purposed that he would be condemned. He ordained that he would die on a cross. He intentionally laid him in the ashes. Is that big? Wow. You might think, well, that's a hard thing to grasp, Pastor. Why would the father do such a thing to his son? Why? Isaiah 53 says, But the Lord was pleased to crush him. That's verse number 10. The Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hands. The Lord had more of a picture in mind than just the fact that his son had to die. He knew the results of that death. He knew that that was the thing that would save you and me and bring us to that place where we could stand before him and give him the glory forever and ever. He says, it's got to go through the cross. It's got to be paid by my son. That's his plan. So he intentionally, he intentionally laid his son in those ashes. Because if the father hadn't given up his son to death, he couldn't save you. He couldn't save you. Don't think ever for a minute that the Father doesn't love you. Don't think that. He demonstrates His own love for you. And that while you were yet a sinner, Christ died for you. That's my favorite verse in the whole book. My favorite verse, Romans 5.8. The only way we would know of this love... The only way we would ever understand it would be for the Father to carefully, intentionally set up a a display that would forever be the only full picture of His love for you. The only one He ever sets on the table for the world to see. The only one that He has declared forever is the answer to sin. He showcases a cross and his son dying there for your sins and for mine. That's the whole picture. There is such power in those words. He laid me in the dust of death. That's an intense act. That, I think, would be the climax of the suffering, the pinnacle of the passion. Just read through these words with me. I told you I'd go through the passage. So let's go back to Psalm 22 and let's look at the words. Let's look at the words that led to such a phrase. You know, God has always recorded for us here in Scripture a track record of His faithfulness. We have this wonderful wording up on the wall here. We like that, don't we? That's in the midst of Lamentations. That's a hard book to read. 
And as you're reading, everything is falling apart. It's a terrible, terrible scene. But there we come across this phrase, His mercies never cease. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. And we love that, don't we? We hang on to that, don't we? Do you think of that every time you see a sunrise? I love looking out there, seeing the sun just coming up through the trees and all that stuff. But I see the sunrise and I think, oh, Lord, you're so faithful. Today you're faithful again. That's his track record. We've known it. We've seen it. His Israelite children knew that too. The whole Old Testament is their story of, they're in trouble, he rescues them. They're in trouble, he rescues them. It's just on and on and on and on. And that's the way it starts in verse 4. Just God's track record. In you our fathers trusted. You, they trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and they were delivered. In you they trusted. They were not disappointed. How often God came to the rescue. But in contrast to that picture, Jesus was not meant to be rescued. Verse 4, or I mean verse number 6. But I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip. They wag their head. You can picture this, can't you? They're standing down below the cross. They're looking up at Jesus on that cross and they're mocking him. They're saying, oh, commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. He's going for Elijah. Let him rescue him. Because he delights in him. Right? Right? You can hear their words at the foot of the cross. And they must have gone on for some time. And it's as if the cross wasn't shame enough for them. They had to add insult They had to add mockery. And they threw scripture at him, even. They said, see, he must not really be one of God's prophets, because if he was, God would have saved him. And I don't see that happening, do you? God is not saving him in his time of need. And they mocked him. They mocked him. They mocked him. But he wasn't meant to be rescued. They didn't understand, did they? This separation was difficult. It was difficult for Jesus. He was forsaken as if that's something he'd never known before. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Even from his childhood and his flesh, God had always been with him. He says it in verse 9 and 10. He says, yet you you are he who brought me forth from the womb. You made me trust when upon my mother's breast. Upon you I I was cast from birth. You have been my God from my mother's womb. That's all Jesus ever knew was his relationship with his father. And now he's deserted. Now he's deserted. Look at verse 11. Be not far from me. Who do you say that to? But somebody who's far from you. (laughs) Right? Be not far from me. Trouble is near, and there is none to help. You want a good feeling of that phrase, say it in an empty room. There is none to help. Say it when you're at your weakest point. 
Say it when you're getting pressed in on every side, when you're getting bad news, when you're feeling terrible, when you're, when you're undergoing some terrible test or medical thing or whatever. And look at those words and read them and you'll get the hollow feel that comes with that phrase. I thank the Lord that He's with us, don't you? That this is not true of the believer. But Jesus Christ could literally say those words from a cross. There's none to help. There's none to help. In verse 12 and 13, he is absolutely insulted and surrounded. It says, many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They opened wide their mouth at me as a ravening and as a roaring lion. That's intimidation on top of it all. He's about to be crushed. He's about to be devoured. And this insult just carries on and on and on. And it says in verse 14, and this is where he was crucified, I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. And here he dies. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue cleaves to my jaws. And you lay me in the dust of death. Some of these phrases that I was able to read as I was preparing and thinking through this, I found in Matthew Henry's commentary. I, if you've got a lot of time, read his commentary. It's not meant for the quickie ten minutes before you teach. All right, There's a lot of meat here and a lot of thought and a, and a lot of flowery words too. But uh, that's Matthew Henry's style. And as he's Putting this psalm together, he says, here he is deserted, here he is insulted, here he is crucified, here he is dying. And with each of those, there's a paragraph. And I'm just going to read the one, here he is dying. All right, this is what he wrote. He is here dying, dying in pain and anguish because he was to satisfy for sins, which brought in pain and for which we must otherwise have lain in everlasting anguish. Here is one, the dissolution of the whole frame of the body. I am poured out like water, weak as water, in yielding to the power of death, emptying himself of all the supports of his human nature. Number two, the dislocation of his bones. Care was taken that not one of them should be broken, but they were all out of joint by the violent stretching of his body upon the cross as upon a rack. Or it may denote the fear that seized him in his agony in the garden when he began to be sore amazed, the effect of which perhaps was, as sometimes it has been in great fear, that the joints of his loins were loosened and his knees smote against one another. His bones were put out of joint that he might put the whole creation into joint again, which sin had put out of joint and makes our broken bones to rejoice. The colloquation of his spirit. My heart is like wax, melted to receive the impressions of God's wrath against the sins he undertook to satisfy for, melting away like the vitals of a dying man. And as this satisfied for the hardness of our hearts, so the consideration of it should help to soften them. 
When Job speaks of his inward troubles, he said, The Almighty has made me soft. The falling, the failing of his natural force, my strength is dried up, so that he became parched and brittle like a potsherd. The radical moisture being wasted by the fire of divine wrath preying upon his spirits. Who then can stand before God's anger? Or who knows the power of it? If this was done in a green tree, what shall be done in the dry? The clamminess of his mouth, the usual symptoms of approaching death. My tongue cleaves to my jaws. This was fulfilled both in his thirst upon the cross and his silence under his suffering. For as a sheep before the shearers is dumb, so he opened not his mouth, nor objected against anything done to him. He is giving up the ghost. Thou hast brought me to the dust of death. I am ready to drop into the grave. For nothing less would satisfy divine justice. The life of the sinner was forfeited, and therefore the life of the sacrifice must be ransomed for it. The sentence of death passed upon Adam was thus expressed, Unto death thou shalt return. And therefore Christ, having an eye to the sentence of his obedience to death, used a similar expression, Thou hast brought me to the dust of death. That's a lot of words, folks. And we stand here and we see a cross like this, and I think there comes a point where words stop. What else can we say? What else can we say? You know, it's hard enough to see somebody suffer and die. But to know that they suffered and died for us? They did it for us? To know that this was for us? The old song I I love hearing from time to time has one phrase in it, those rusty nails were meant for me, yet Christ took them and let me go free. This, folks, was not an accident in God's plan. It was not an accident. It didn't surprise him that the cross surfaced in the life of his son. We don't know what the next ten minutes are going to bring. But God knew before the world was even made that His Son would die for us, and He laid Him there. He laid Him there. Do you recognize now the hand of God in the Savior's suffering? Do you know that that same hand that led Him to the cross is the same hand that's open to you right now? open to you right now, calling for you to come and to receive from His hand the forgiveness and the life that you need? Do you know that the same heart that loves His Son is the heart that loves you too? Jesus was His Son, and through Jesus you can be and have the right to be called the children of God. The cross was on purpose, folks. His death was intentional. Our salvation is not accidental either. No one enters heaven inadvertently. Surprise! You're not saved by luck. You're saved by Jesus Christ. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. And no man, I don't care who they are, No man comes to the Father but through Him. 
period. That's it. The path God has already made. Do you know it? God has paved it with His own Son. Do you know it? Today, this is the point. Either you know Jesus as your Savior, or you need to know Jesus as your Savior. You're one or the other. That's true of all of us. And this reminder in front of us today, this communion table, is set up to remind us that God had already given His Son. This is looking back that we see this. And everyone who takes of this, this bread or this drink, they know Jesus Christ as their Savior. They're remembering that. They're rejoicing in that. That's why Jesus said, this body is broken for you, or this cup was given for you. They represent His body, they represent His blood, but it was shed for you. It was given for you. God had arranged all this beforehand. And if you have Jesus as your Savior, you take from it today. You take from it, and you rejoice in the fact that God thought of you way back then and made the way that you could know Him now and you will know Him forever. Isn't that precious? That's precious. If you don't have Jesus as your Savior, you need Him right now. You need Him right now and you could ask Him right now. That's the amazing thing. You don't have to wait for Pastor Bob to stop gabbing. Just talk to the Lord. He hears you. The promise is that all who believe in Him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. The promise is that if you call upon the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. And that's what Scripture says, because that's the amazing way our God works. That's the amazing thing He's done for us. When we approach this table today, let's remember, God did this on purpose. And let us be thankful people that we were part of that purpose.